The story of Melissa and Periander. Andreas and Lysias reached the grove as evening fell. The tall, dark silhouettes of poplar trees lining the road loomed over them like whispering guards. Here and there, willows wept over the dirt track as if mourning the souls of the dead that they had come to see. I don't like this, said Lysias suddenly. It was the first time he'd spoken in hours. Neither do I, agreed Andreas, and they pressed on grimly. Soon they could see the lake through the trees, the rising moon picking out the waves lapping the shore in a gentle breeze. The water was dark, and even from a distance they could see it was cold. Half hidden by a large willow was the temple. It's smaller than I was expecting, said Andreas, hesitating. Looks tiny, Lysias agreed, peering forward. They were about to turn around and check the route, when a small figure in the robe of a priest stepped out from the temple doorway. "'You are the messengers from Corinth,' he said, without so much as a hello. "'We are,' said Andreas, coming forward to meet him. "'Is this the Necromanteon?' "'This is the Oracle of the Dead,' confirmed the priest. "'Have you brought the sacrifice?' He looked them up and down, clearly noticing that they had no sheep or goat with them. Periander, the tyrant of Corinth, sends this gift, said Lysias, producing a gold necklace from his pouch, and expects that you will accept it in lieu of a sacrifice. <clears throat> the priest looked disgruntled. The gods require blood for the raising of the dead. He watched the two men reach reluctantly for their swords. But, he added hastily, I think I have a spare goat nearby, luckily. The priest disappeared into the woods for a few minutes and soon returned, leading a rather scruffy goat by a short rope. He took the two visitors to a small altar standing between the temple and the lake and after a few somewhat perfunctory prayers, hit the goat over the head with a mallet, slit its throat and skinned it. He collected the animal's blood in a large jug. Now the skins must be prepared for tomorrow, he told the waiting men. Tomorrow, said Lysias. We need an answer now, sir. We must consult the oracle now. The priest opened his mouth to explain that the process could not be hurried and saw the men's hands move towards their swords again. I expect I can find an old skin somewhere, he said, swallowing his words and his pride. Again he disappeared for a few minutes, returning with two goatskin pelts. Wrap these around your shoulders, he said, and follow me. First, he took them to the lakeside and, saying a few more prayers, poured the blood into the lake. The souls of the dead can be found in the water, he said. The blood will call them up. And we wait here? asked Andreas. He was leaning forward, trying to see into the water. Lysias held back, eyeing the rustling trees nervously. No, said the priest, we must descend. They will meet us there. That was all he would say, but he set the jug down by the lakeside and motioned to them to follow him. Together they walked through the door of the small temple. Inside it was almost completely dark, except for the little moonlight let in by the open door. The temple itself was fairly bare. A statue of Persephone and a statue of Hades stood at either side, 
and another statue of Persephone at the far end was placed next to a shadow even darker than the rest, the only clue that another door was built into the far wall. Andreas had expected this to be merely an alternative exit, but as they got closer and his eyes got used to the dark, he could just about make out a staircase leading down into a tunnel under the lake. You may take these lamps to see you down the stairs, but you must extinguish them when you reach the consultation area, said the priest, handing two very small oil lamps to the visitors and lighting them. You should also drink this, and he shoved two small cups into their free hands. It will help open you up to the spirits. What is it? demanded Lysias, but Andreas had already drunk his. Ugh, foul tasting, he said probably henbane, which is well known to drive men out of their senses. He glared accusingly at the priest. This is true, said the priest calmly. In such a state, a man is more open to receiving the messages of the gods, or the dead. Fine, said Lysias unhappily, and drank his own. Good, said the priest. Now go on down, and I will come back for you in the morning. Wait, what? cried Lysias, but it was too late. He was gone. There was nothing for it but to carry on down the staircase. After a minute or two, they reached a roughly level floor, and the tunnel opened out into a small underground room. It was entirely empty. His limbs starting to shake, Andreas extinguished both lamps, and the men sat down on the rough floor and leaned against the wall to await a visitation. It was several hours before anything happened, by which time both were desperately thirsty and felt more ill than they ever had in their lives. Are we to die ourselves in order to meet the dead? Are we on our way to the underworld? croaked Lysias. But shh, said Andreas, for something was finally starting to happen. Appearing apparently out of the wall of the tunnel, a woman walked towards them, stopping just a few feet from where they lay in their misery. She was completely naked and very beautiful. Her body showed signs of having borne children, her belly beautifully rounded, and her face was wise and sad and full of pain, but still elegant and perfectly formed. I do not know you, she said. I am Melissa, once the wife of Periander, the tyrant of Corinth. You have come from my husband? Yes, croaked Andreas. Lysias was completely silent. He needs the gifts brought to you by your father Procles soon after your marriage. He was in great need of more capital and things do not go well between your father and himself. He cannot ask for more. Can you tell us where the treasure is? She laughed, but not merrily. It was a cold, angry, painful laugh. <laughs> Things do not go well with my father, eh? She said. And suddenly she leaned forward to thrust her face right at Andreas. He was aware of her naked breasts hovering before his own chest, but he kept his eyes firmly on her beautiful but hollow face. Perhaps because he threw himself upon me in a fit of completely unfounded jealous rage, Killing myself and my unborn child. Perhaps that is why my father disdains him now. She laughed again, and Andreas bit his lip, resisting the urge to say that, yes, that was probably it. Do you know where the treasure is? he asked instead. Yes, 
She withdrew and stood, still now, staring down at him from the centre of the darkness. Will you tell me? No. Andreas did not know what to say, but to his relief she continued. Why should I help him who never helped me in life? she demanded. Him who abandoned our brightest son to exile and death, who murdered myself and my child. You see, I am naked and cold. And here she gestured to her pale and luminescent body. He was filled with regret and could not take his eyes from my dead body. He had me burned naked so he could watch the flames consume me. And so here I am, with no clothes, nor shoes, nor even a veil to cover myself over. Why should I help him who never helped me? Lysias finally found his voice. This is slander against our tyrant, he said. How do we know there is anything of truth to any of this? Melissa snorted derisively. So men have always said, she said, though in your hearts you know it to be true. For yourselves I can offer no further reassurance. But if Periander doubts that it was truly me you met with, you can tell him this. It will do him no good to bake his loaves in a cold oven. And with that she withdrew and faded back into the darkness. I put my loaves in a cold oven, said Periander angrily. What sort of ridiculous riddle is this? My lord, it is what she said, said Andreas miserably. Perhaps the priests could interpret it for you? No, said Periander slowly, sitting down and resting his head on his hand. No, I think perhaps I can do that myself. My lord? Lysias' curiosity got the better of him, as he and Andreas had been puzzling over the cryptic message through the whole journey back to Corinth. I lay with her after she died, Periander mused, apparently completely oblivious to the horrified expressions on the faces of his two messengers as this sank in. She was so beautiful lying there, even more beautiful than I had ever seen her before. I planted my seed, but nothing can come of it in a cold oven. The tyrant wiped a hand across his forehead and seemed to come to some kind of decision. So, he said, your vision was genuine. It was my wife's spirit you spoke with. No one else could have known that. And she is still cold and naked in the halls of the dead. He stood up. Call all of the women of the city to the temple of Hera, he said. Sir, said Andreas anxiously. Do it. It took a day or two, but no one wanted to be the one who angered Periander. Within three days, all the women of Corinth, freeborn, freed and slave, had gathered in and around the temple of Hera by the sea. All three aisles were filled with women who, according to their instructions, were wearing their best festival finery. Few wore veils and their hair was braided. Gold hung from their ears and their necks and the temple was filled with the bright colours of their best clothes. Flax yellow, sea purple, blood red, leek green and sky blue. Thick brooches held together the heavy pleats as their skirts swirled around the lamplight in the temple and the sunshine on the beach, dancing in the spray from the waves. Joy, excitement and anticipation were in the air. The message had given no reason for the summons, only that they should come to the temple in their best and most expensive outfits. 
All around the temple and the beach, women could be heard talking, laughing and wondering. What were they celebrating? Did Periander have some good news to share? Did he wish to honour the goddess of wives and mothers, Hera, in some special way? Periander appeared by the altar outside the main doors to the temple. His expression was set stone cold. He was flanked by a whole phalanx of hoplite soldiers who stood behind him. Strip them all, he said. It took a few minutes for the women to realise what was happening. There was no explanation and no warning. The soldiers simply moved forward, grabbed the nearest woman and forcibly removed her clothes. At first there were screams and some of the women tried to run away, only to find their path blocked by more soldiers. The temple complex was filled with the sounds of women weeping. As the soldiers moved on, the naked women nearest the doors realised that they were being left alone. Any woman with no clothes was allowed to leave, and so they ran, weeping, into the woods. Periander watched them go, a smug, satisfied smile on his face. Make the pyre on the beach, he said, and burn them all. And so the women who were left until last saw what became of their beautiful clothes, their best festival dresses that had been passed down from their mothers and grandmothers, the clothes lovingly woven by their aunts and sisters and daughters, the clothes they had saved up for months to buy. All were piled onto a great funeral pyre on the beach, and all were burned. The smoke drifted out across the sea, carrying with it the dust of blood-red and leek-green fibres, tiny patches of beloved shawls carried out across the sea. Perhaps some of them were carried by the wind all the way to the dark lake on the Acheron, where a naked woman waited in a dark basement under the water. Andreas and Lysias were more prepared when they returned to the lake. They bought a goat in a nearby village and a bribe for the priest to once again provide skins ready to use straight away. Both trembled from head to toe as they forced themselves to walk into the dank lakeside temple. As they approached the dark basement door, Lysias shrank back and almost could not bring himself to go in. But Andreas took him by the hand and, with a reassuring squeeze, gently pulled him through, and they descended the steps into hell together. It did not take long for the looming form of Melissa to appear before them once more, no longer naked but clothed in all the colours of the rainbow in a garment that no woman would ever have deliberately produced, unless perhaps she was colourblind. Blood red next to sea purple, next to leek green, next to flax yellow, all in an arrangement that was positively painful to the eyes. Welcome back, boys, she said. Our Lord has answered your complaint, said Andreas, his voice shaking. You have more clothes than you could wish for, of the best quality. Will you now tell him where the wedding gifts are? She laughed long and hard. <laughs> well, a new dress makes up for everything, doesn't it? She said, her voice dripping with sarcasm. No, boys, I will not. Lysias put his head in his hands and made as if to move towards the stairs, but Andreas was not giving up. Madam, he said, I don't think you quite understand. The women of Corinth were stripped of their finest clothes for the dress you now wear. They were brought to the temple of Hera by the sea as if for a celebration, 
and soldiers fell upon them and stripped them naked, leaving them to find their own way home, cold and vulnerable. If you could have heard their cries, he choked and paused for a moment. If we return still without an answer, I do not know what our Lord Periander will do. Perhaps he will decide a greater sacrifice is required. Madam, I fear for the lives of the women of Corinth. And my own, he added silently in his head. It seemed that the figure of the woman shrank before him, no longer looming and menacing. Now she was just a woman, standing alone in a dark and dank basement in a hand-me-down dress. She appeared to think for a moment. Tell him to go to the women's quarters in our summer home by the bay, she said at last. In the room I used to use is a large chest. The key is buried next to the well in the garden. Thank you, my lady, said Andreas with feeling. You have a generous spirit. As the two men moved to leave, Melissa seemed to grow taller again, and she called after them. You can tell my husband that this is not over. Her confidence returned, her eyes more hollow than ever. I am waiting for him, with two of our sons, she said. I will allow him this one little thing, for the sake of my friends and my people. But I will have my vengeance, in the next life, since I was denied it in this one. And with that she vanished, as the messengers scrambled over each other, reaching desperately for the air and the light. The End Hello, and welcome back to Creepy Classics. I'm Juliette Harrison, uh, and this is the podcast where I rewrite, retell, and then discuss ancient ghost stories uh, from Greece and Rome primarily, and sometimes from medieval and early modern periods. Today's story is taken from the Histories of Herodotus, uh, book five, section 92. Uh, a story about the tyrant of Corinth, Periander, uh, and his dead wife, Melissa. Herodotus is often called the father of history. We get the word from him. Uh, this was his historiae, his investigation into the causes of the Persian Wars. So technically, his very large work is a history of the Persian Wars, but he does quite often get distracted uh, and goes off on some quite lengthy diversions. The whole of book two is a description of ancient Egypt, which is absolutely fascinating, incredibly useful. Very little to do with the Persian Wars. He's sometimes also called the father of lies because of his tendency to report all sorts of stories, regardless of how likely they are or are not to be true. To be fair to him, he does quite frequently say, I'm not really sure about this, I don't know if this is really true, this is what they told me. His method was basically to go around collecting oral histories and stories from people, and then he put them all together to make his history. The Persian Wars themselves had happened when he was a baby and just before he was born. So he was talking to people who remembered the events in the case of those. This story happens sometime earlier than that. This is a story about something that had happened um, sometime before the Persian Wars. So this is more kind of oral history, oral folklore at this point um, that this story is passed into. 
And Herodotus simply sort of wrote down everything people told him. Uh, includes all sorts of things, like there's a story about a phoenix in the histories. He talks about giant gold-digging ants out in what would be modern Afghanistan. These may or may not have been stories of things like camel spiders that might have kind of got twisted and changed in the course of getting to Herodotus. We're not really sure. Um, he talks about some very interesting stories coming out of Persia about how they chose some of their kings, which don't sound terribly politically plausible. Um, but we do have him to thank for really the whole discipline of history. And he's very entertaining. He's followed by a historian called Thucydides, who writes a history of the Peloponnesian Wars. Thucydides actually fought in the Peloponnesian Wars, and he's much less inclined to include stories about Phoenix's gold-digging ants, or indeed ghosts. Um, as far as I'm concerned, that makes Thucydides far more boring. <laughs> Maybe he's a better historian, but he's much more dull. Uh, and Thucydides made up entire speeches, if nobody could remember exactly what somebody said. So he's not really that much better. He's just got a different set of interests. This story, according to Herodotus, is told by a delegation of Corinthians to the Spartans to warn them against the dangers of tyranny. So the Corinthians, this is early stages of the Persian Wars, the Corinthians are telling the Spartans why tyranny is something to be afraid of. So Persia is under a monarchy. Persia is attacking the various city-states of Greece. The city-states in Greece are not connected to each other. They all exist as political, politically independent entities, um, but they are allying with each other to fight off this attack from the Persians. And the Corinthians are persuading the Spartans why it's important to fight the Persians, why tyranny is a bad thing. So they're telling this story about a ruler of Corinth from several decades earlier. And the starting point for the story is the stripping of the women. So for Herodotus, the ghost part, the oracle of the dead part, is almost incidental. He starts this story with once the tyrant Periander stripped all the women of Corinth in a single day. So it's really a story about how awful Periander is, how awful tyranny and rule by one man is. That's the, the point of telling the story. Uh, and you can read the full text at Bill Thayer's site, Lacus Curtius, online. Uh, it's a relatively older translation, but it's a decent translation and it's it's well set out. It's a, Lacus Curtius is an absolutely brilliant site, mostly Roman texts, but some Greek as well, like this one. Uh, and I thoroughly recommend it, uh, having an explore along there. And it's also on um, perseus.tufts.edu. I had the women stripped at the temple of Hera and I chose the Herion of Perichora to base my description on. Uh, this is about eight miles from Corinth. It's an unusual temple design. It has three aisles rather than one and it's right next to the sea so that allowed for some kind of fairly artistic descriptions and it's a possibility for a temple of Hera that the women of Corinth might be sent to. And then I've described the women wearing their best festival clothes. So women's dress, particularly festival dress, special dress, would have been much more colourful than we often imagine it. Greek and Roman statues weren't originally the sort of white marble that we see. They were painted. And presumably they were painted in some of the colours of the clothing people actually wore. 
the words I've used to describe those colours, I've tried to echo the way Greek and Latin works. When Greek and Latin describes colours, it often describes them in terms of a thing that is that colour. So sky blue, leek green, the words for colours are usually derived from something that is that colour. So I've tried to reflect that in my description. But of course, as far as ghost stories are concerned, the really interesting part of this story is the description of the Oracle of the Dead uh, on the Acheron in Thesprotia. So there's lots of information about Oracles of the Dead in Daniel Ogden's book Greek and Roman Necromancy, which is where I've taken most of my information from um, for this story. There were four main Oracles of the Dead. The Acheron in Thesprotia, which is this one, the Avernus in Campania, Heraclea Pontica on the Black Sea, and the Tynaron, sorry, uh, on the Mani Peninsula. All of them are by a lake, a pool, or the sea. So there's some possibility that maybe the spirits of the dead are thought to reside in the water, possibly. And I sort of suggested that in the story, that maybe the, the spirits of the dead are in the water. They may have been incubation oracles, an incubation oracle is an oracle where you go to a temple or sacred site and you go to sleep and you pray to the gods for a dream. They're often healing sites, so you pray for a dream that will tell you how to cure your problem or that you will be healed through a dream. They're not exclusively for healing, but they're primarily for healing. I chose not to make this an incubation oracle I think it's quite likely it may have been. The reason that I didn't make it an incubation oracle in the story is mainly because of the difference in the way we view seeing the dead in dreams in a modern context than an ancient one. So in the ancient world, it was considered possible that the dead would visit the living through a dream. And this is something that's come up before when uh, I did Achilles and Patroclus for episode two, that... For Greeks and Romans, a visitation from a ghost in a dream is still a real experience with the spirits of the dead. Just because the ghost visits you through a dream doesn't mean it's not really the ghost of the dead person really communicating with you. Whereas from a modern point of view, we would tend to think that if you are dreaming about a dead person, that that's your brain. It's not a real experience. So because I was putting the story into a sort of modern short story format um, and I had a choice we, we think these may or may not have been incubation oracles so I decided to make it not an incubation oracle just to make it really clear that this is a real experience with a real ghost although since they involve going underground in the dark and all that kind of thing you can see you could easily fall asleep and not even realize you had there's also a sense with a lot of descriptions of these oracles that they include some kind of descent to the underworld. So I've interpreted that as stairs down to a basement, sort of underneath the lake. Um, there's a, a late source called Ampelius who suggests that the temple to Jupiter Trophonius had a descent to the underworld included. I've basically had to make up the process of consulting the oracle itself, but I've based it on a few different things. So... Obviously, I've taken the rather vague details we have about the oracle. I've based some of it on regular practices at incubation oracles. So quite frequently at incubation oracles, you would sacrifice an animal and you would sleep on the skin. 
And one of the things that often as historians we don't always think about when describing that kind of thing is that actually that would take several days. By the time you've killed an animal and then you've had to treat the skin so that you can sleep on it, that's a lengthy process. And you'd probably buy an animal somewhere near the shrine as well. If you've travelled a long way, you're not going to travel the whole way with a sheep or a goat with you. So... I speeded up the process for the story, partly to keep the story moving. Um, it's a short story, partly to keep the, the pace going in the narrative, but also to emphasise how awful Periander is. Because, again, for Herodotus, the point of this story is how terrible Periander is and how terrified everyone is of him. So by having them threaten the priest if he doesn't find some way to speed up this process, I was able to emphasise what for Herodotus is the real point of this story a bit more. And I've also included some guesses about how oracles of the dead, which are nequamanteon, is the Greek for an oracle of the dead. Uh, some guesses about how they worked. Um, there's some suggestion they might have included pouring out blood. Um, in the Odyssey, Odysseus has to sacrifice an animal and then pour out its blood, and the ghosts of the dead can't speak to him until they've drunk the blood. So pouring blood may have been part of the ritual at these oracles as well. I also had my characters drink henbane. Whether or not people took any kind of drugs at these oracles is disputed. You wouldn't need drugs. If it's an incubation oracle and you're sleeping and praying for a dream, you would almost certainly dream about the god anyway because you're thinking about the god all the time. You've made a long journey potentially to get there. You've spent days preparing, you've paid a bunch of money to the priests, you're surrounded by images of the god. If you're in a, a healing temple, you're going to have pictures of the god Asclepius, god of healing, everywhere. So you won't need any kind of drugs to dream about the god or to dream about an illness if it's been on your mind. On the other hand, it's not impossible that there were some drugs involved. And with this being an oracle of the dead and the fact that I had made it not an incubation oracle and I hadn't included them going to sleep, uh, I decided to include taking some kind of uh, drug that would increase the experience. Uh, I had them drink henbane. Um, this is recorded by Pliny the Elder in the first century CE, the Roman writer. He says it had... Um, quite an effect on the brain, that it would drive men out of their senses. And I looked up some of the physical effects of drinking henbane to include um, like pain and extreme thirst uh, to include in my version of the story. The reason for oracles of the dead is that in the ancient world, the dead were thought to have access to knowledge that the living didn't. So if you want to find out something that you can't possibly know, you go to an oracle. Often it's something about the future. Obviously, we don't know the future. Sometimes about past or present. So people would go to oracles and ask things like, is the baby mine? There's no DNA tests in the ancient world. So if there's any doubt over the paternity of a child, all you can do is ask an oracle. Um, they would ask things like, uh, who stole this from me? Um, because if you can't find out any other way, that's all you can do. And then questions about the future. Will it be good for me if I sail to a new city, if I go to war, if I start a new business? So the gods had access to that information, but so did the dead. When a person dies for the ancients, they their human part dies, the body dies, and then there is certainly for the Romans and to an extent for the Greeks as well, a, a sort of divine aspect to a person 
which then has access to knowledge that other humans don't. So there are some stories about consulting the dead to ask about things that the living can't know, to ask about the future. In this case, I've gone for the slightly more familiar trope of asking a dead person where something is that only they knew where it was, because that's closer to this particular story. Uh, in the story in Herodotus, there is a sort of unnamed deposit, something that Periander needs that Melissa knows where it is. Um, so that's why I, I went with that sort of fairly straightforward version where she knows where this thing is and he doesn't, so he has to ask her. And of course, the most memorable things about this story are not only her nakedness, but the fact that Periander has supposedly had relations uh, with her dead body. And that is provided as the, the clue to how you know for sure um, that this is definitely Melissa's ghost. So I used that in pretty much the same way Herodotus does. I threw on a final little flourish at the end. So I told the story as part of the event that I did at the Coffin Works in Birmingham for Valentine's Day. Um, and during the questions section, uh, somebody in the audience mentioned it sort of felt a bit unfinished. And I had to confess that the bit where Melissa promises to have her vengeance was entirely invented by me, just because this story is so horrible. <laughs> Periander is so awful. And Melissa is, I, I felt so bad for Melissa. She has this terrible, terrible life with this awful, abusive husband uh, who then kills her. And I just, I wanted Melissa to have the opportunity to sort of fight back. So I basically misquoted Gladiator. Um, she hasn't been able to have her vengeance in this life. Um, so I sort of threw a half gladiator quote in there from the, the 2000 Ridley Scott film um, where I had her promise that she will exact her vengeance in the next life in some way. And that was really me giving Melissa a bit more voice and agency than the poor woman ever had. And these are real people. Whether this story itself is accurate... Who knows? It's an oral tradition that's been passed down for the better part of two centuries by the time Herodotus writes it down. So how much truth there is to this specific story is hard to say. But Melissa and Periander were real people. Chances are that's really what happened to her. That's really how she lived and died. Uh, whatever you think about all the ghost bits and the stripping all the women bits of the story. Um, so this is a real woman who was probably a victim of domestic abuse and I just wanted to give her something um, in this story and not just sort of exploit what was, by the sounds of it, a pretty sad life, um, just for my own purposes. Well, thank you very much for listening to this episode of Creepy Classics. Uh, I will be back next month with another spooky story um, from the ancient medieval or early modern periods. Creepy Classics is written, performed and produced by Juliet Harrison with assistance from Newman University. Music composed and performed by Ed Harrison. <laughs>